Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I hope that you have had a great and wonderful weekend. I hope you have been refreshed and rejuvenated. I hope you have been loved on. I hope you have been encouraged. I hope you have been able to connect with your family and your friends and those that you love. It is Daring Dialogues, and I'm your host tonight, Shantae Charles. We're going to jump right in to our reading tonight. We are reading I Never Had It Made by Jackie Robinson, his own autobiography, his own words about his own experiences. If there has been any lesson that I have learned thus far from him, it has been making sure that you tell your own story making sure you tell your own story. And so I'm excited. This past Saturday, I celebrated my 44th birthday. So if you want to uh, be a blessing, some people, because I did not put any of my uh, giving links down, some people did message me and ask how they could be a blessing. If you would like to give, you can always go to my actual store, robertandshantayglobal.com, and you can shop the store. Um, if you want to, you know, purchase and support my work as a artist, as a maker, you can go there. Um, but if you just want to give financially, you can hit me up on my cash app, which is Life Nation. Um, or my Venmo, which is Shantae, S-H-A-N-T-A-E dash Charles, C-H-A-R-L-E-S. So that's that. But I want to jump into the reading because Jackie has been giving it to us straight. <laughs> He's been giving it to us straight. We're about halfway through and we're on chapter 10, which is entitled New Horizons. Jackie has now left baseball. He has retired and now he is um, venturing into some new endeavors, new business endeavors after his retirement from baseball. So let's jump in and see what he has to share tonight. William Black, a white businessman who was the founder owner of the Chock Full of Nuts Corporation, had started off in business selling nuts of various kinds. Business was so good that he moved to a larger location, one which had room for people to come in and stand at the counter. Soon, Bill Black was in the restaurant business offering a limited number of rapidly prepared items at reasonable prices and with swift and polite service. The next step was to open chains of shops all over New York City and then to offer franchises and to sell his coffee and some of his other products in retail grocery stores. Bill Black became a millionaire with a flourishing business that eventually became a publicly owned company. I was amused to learn that in the minds of some bigoted people, Mr. Black was considered guilty of racial discrimination in hiring. The majority of his employees were black. A few racists referred to his company as chock full of in words. Mr. Black once faced the charge that he was discriminating against whites. 
He took out a full page ad in some newspapers explaining in the ad that when he was organizing his business, he had serious problems hiring counter girls and other people necessary to a restaurant. Black men and women who were so severely discriminated against in employment areas were easier for him to get than whites. Since he didn't give a darn about skin color if a person could do the job, he had hired black people. The ad went on to assure whites that if they applied, they would not be mistreated. At the time I joined Bill Black, Roy Wilkins, who was even then executive secretary of the NAACP, had asked if I would chair the organization's Freedom Fund Drive. This was a national drive to raise major funds for the organization's activities. Membership recruitment and other activities around the country were coordinated from the national office. I have a feeling that when Mr. Wilkins asked me to head the drive, he did so in the same spirit that many organization heads asked public personalities to participate in their work. Get these personalities to agree to the use of their names on the letterheads, attend press conferences and a couple of ceremonial events, take a few publicity pictures, but let the real work be done by others. I was determined it wasn't going to be that way with me. If my name was going to be involved, then I wanted to be involved as much as possible. One issue that Bill Black and I saw eye to eye on right away was the NAACP Freedom Fund Drive. Mr. Black told me that if he were in my place, there wouldn't be enough he could do for the cause of freedom for black people. He said he approved wholeheartedly of my participation and if it didn't interfere with my work at Chalk, I was free to use company time to travel, work, and speak for the NAACP. In a gesture that put meaning behind his words, Mr. Black then gave me a check made out to the NAACP that was in five figures. I felt I had a debt to my people and I wanted to volunteer my services at the same time the organization I believe was helping them the most. I let Roy know how I felt and I said that I would be available to the national chairman, but not just in name only. I was committed to the principles of the NAACP, but I didn't know much about the organization's history and its goals. I needed some guidance and I said so. I had never been the spokesman for a big fund drive either. I would do my part, but I would need a professional teammate. Roy asked Franklin Williams to take a couple of weeks out from his West Coast work to attend the NAACP's annual dinner and accompany me on a speaking tour. Frank Williams was a brilliant young lawyer who in later years became ambassador to Ghana and now served as executive director of the Phelps Stoke Fund. From 1945 to 1950, Frank had been Thurgood Marshall's assistant handling all the NAACP criminal cases. In 1950, he had been sent to the West Coast to take over that region for the organization. So Frank and I met for the first time at the NAACP's annual dinner the night before we were to begin our swing through several cities to speak at major fund rallies. The morning after the dinner, we met at Penn Station to take a train for Pittsburgh, where the first rally was to be held the following night. Frank and I shared a bedroom with upper and lower berths, and during the first few moments of the trip, there was a great silence between us. Frank tells me now that I was kind of withdrawn and not talkative at all, and that he was riding along overwhelmed by being with me because he had been a long-time fan. He says he kept asking himself, how am I going to prepare this famous baseball star to become a civil rights spokesperson? 
Finally, I broke the ice and asked Frank to tell me all he could about the NAACP. Frank came up with one of the most amazing performances I've ever heard. He talked and talked and talked. He talked about the NAACP's beginnings, how it, been, how it had been founded and by whom. He spoke of all the cases and decisions the organization had won in courts all over the nation and in the Supreme Court. He talked about NAACP personalities like Walter White, W. William E.B. Dubois, the Spring Arm Brothers, Mary Ovington White, and Thurgood Marshall. It was slightly after 11 o'clock that night when I glanced at my watch. I had become utterly fascinated by Frank's knowledge and by the clear and fluent way he had of communicating. Frank and I worked out a format for the meetings we were going to address. He would be introduced by a local official and he would present me. I would talk about the NAACP, making a kind of general presentation about why people should support the work. Then Frank would move in again and make the professional money pitch. Anyone who knows anything about fundraising realizes that this is an art, and Frank was a master of it. He introduced me, referring to one of the recent cases, which had a real emotional appeal. He praised me for being willing to participate in the drive. He said that many people who had achieved success didn't feel it necessary to help in the civil rights struggle. I began to speak, and Frank told me later that he was surprised at the many specific references I made. He was amazed that I was able to use so much of the material he had given me for background, material he himself intended to use in the, in the clinching fundraising talk. This forced him to shift gears at the last minute. Frank and I were greatly exhilarated at that meeting because we were proving that we were a team and that we had a good working spirit. And between us, we evoked unusual audience response. After Frank's follow-up, people started literally marching from their seats to give whatever they could. Ones and fives and $10 bills. I got so excited I forgot all about the script, forgot I was finished with my part of the program, and jumped up to stand beside Frank and urge those people on. I started out talking for five or ten minutes at these meetings, and when I got going, well, I was doing half-hour speeches. Frank likes to tease me by telling people that I left nothing for him. Going back over it in my mind now, I remember the warmth and enthusiasm of the, of the rallies. It was a thrill to learn that it is not true that black people are not willing to pay for their freedom. Working with Frank was responsible for a lasting friendship between us. Frank later confessed to me that he had been pretty nervous about the outcome of our working together. He had worked with national chairmen before, he said, but this was the first time a national chairman had come out on the front lines with him and served as the central personality in the rallies. He had shuddered when he thought about how I could have blown the whole deal. Suppose a newsman had asked me in public what the NAACP's attitude was on this or that issue, and I stood there with my mouth open. But it hadn't been like that, and we were a great team. To this day, Frank likes to kid me, because after we had run out of all the gimmicks we could think of, he was shamelessly selling kisses. Not his, mind you, but mine. <laughs> to coax ladies to come down the aisle and give some money. What a painless way to sacrifice for the cause. Our NAACP fundraising tour was only the beginning of a protracted drive for the organization. We were gratified to learn that our year of our tour was the first year the NAACP had ever raised a million dollars, and we were determined to continue working as a team. We had gone to Detroit together to speak at a $100 a plate dinner 
spearheaded by a socially prominent and wealthy black physician, Dr. Alf Thomas, the head of the Detroit organization. During that era, $100 a plate dinners held by blacks were virtually unheard of. One morning afterward, I said to Frank, why can't the national office sponsor an annual $100 plate dinner? Do you believe it can be done? Frank agreed that it was a good idea and we planned a dinner honoring one black and one white person who had made an unusual contribution to civil rights movement or to the racial progress. The $100 admission could be applied, most of it, toward a down payment on a life membership for those who attended. Roy Wilkins listened to our proposition and promptly said it wouldn't work. It would fail because it was too expensive. The reason the dinner in Detroit had worked was that the rich black doctors there had pressured their affluent friends into making it a success. We persisted with strong arguments. Working on it together, Frank and I were sure we could make it success. Finally, Roy reluctantly, reluctantly agreed to let us try it. At the first dinner, we honored Marian Anderson and Rudolph Bing, who had given Marian her chance as the first black diva at the Metropolitan Opera. Frank worked like a demon. I put in the maximum time I could, but it was limited because I was heavily involved with my work at Chalk. We were very proud when the first national office $100 a plate dinner brought in a profit of $75,000. That dinner, inspired by the Detroit affair, was the start of the yearly national and branch $100 a dinner a plate dinner around the country, which has brought in millions of dollars to the NAACP. Through these dinners, NAACP President Kevy Kaplan received tremendous impetus for his pet idea, the Life Membership Drive. In January of 1967, I made a decision that I wouldn't have considered possible in 1960. A New York Times story stated that Mr. Wilkins' old guard had once again crushed the Young Turks in the National Board decisions. After a great deal of soul-searching, I sorrowfully announced that I could no longer be silent and appear to condone what I viewed as the dictatorial administration of Executive Director Wilkins. I had traveled thousands of miles and made dozens of talks and speeches and raised important quantities of money for the NAACP. I regret none of this, for it remains today the oldest and strongest civil rights organization we have. It has a proud history of achievement and the protestation of the rights of black people, and it has fought strongly for those principles on which America was supposed to have been founded. In spite of this, in 1967, I had reached a climax of disappointment with the NAACP. My deep doubts about its future, which my associates and my family shared, led me to resign from the National Board. I still have my doubts about the NAACP. However, I now believe I made a grave error in resigning rather than remaining on the inside to try to fight for reform. My disenchantment stemmed mainly from my realization that Roy Wilkins and a clique of the old guard under his domination had become a reactionary and undemocratic political group. Up until the most recent conventions, Roy and the old guard had stifled the efforts of the younger, more progressive forces within the organization to become meaningfully involved. I am not referring to hotheads who want to come in and take over. I'm speaking of qualified, thoughtful insurgents already in the ranks who want to inject new blood and life into the association. 
Realistically, I recognize that the NAACP is so structured constitutionally that the executive director is given tremendous control and power. And I feel that during Wilkins' years, he was insensitive to the trends of our times, unresponsive to the needs and aims of the black masses, especially the young, and more and more, they seem to reflect a refined, sophisticated, yes, sir, Mr. Charlie point of view. The determination to keep things as they have been instead of the way they ought to be may help gain more Ford Foundation money, but it is not going to gain respect from the younger people of our race, many of whom feel the NAACP is archaic and who reject its posture completely. One of the conditions then existing that many believe has hampered the progress of the NAACP was its inflexible position on constitutional provisions, which made it impossible for younger members onto the board. The age issue has caused much polarization within the rank and file among young black people throughout the nation and within the organization. This state of affairs has improved little over the years. At the time of its 1971 convention, there were only seven youths on the 64-member board. Ten members were under 40 years old. Two-thirds of the board members are over 60, including 10 members who, like Mr. Wilkins, are over 70. I do not think age should be held against anyone. I'm not opposed to Roy Wilkins because he's over 70. I'm opposed to him because I believe he can no longer relate as effectively to the current problems of black people in black and white relations. I do believe he still has much to give in terms of experience and wisdom, but that he should become a senior statesman, perhaps at the board chairman level. He would be able to become more mellow and speak and think with greater effect if he were not forced by his ego and personality to remain constantly on guard and insecure man despite his talent and prestige. 20 years ago, if someone had suggested to me that Roy Wilkins should move out of the ranks of the civil rights and black leadership, I would never have agreed. For me, and I suppose many, he was an idol, a hero, a truly great man. Roy earned the admiration and respect that he was given. He earned it long before black leaders and black youth were putting their bodies on the line for the cause. Roy exposed himself to dangerous missions in the South at a time when the South was noted for lynchings and mob brutality against anyone who even thought about opposing his repressive system. However, Roy's magnificent record is no excuse for enshrining him for life at the helm of the NAACP. Through the years, he has demonstrated his inability to administer democratically. A classic example of Roy's manner of operation is the history of his relationship with Frank Williams. Frank was 39 years old when I met him, and he had been, for some years, one of the young Turks of the NAACP hierarchy. He had come from a very angry experience in the American segregated army, had completed law school in Brooklyn in two years, and passed the bar. When Walter White was still in command of the NAACP, White and Thurgood Marshall hired Frank and recognized that he was a proud and driven man. Marshall gloried in his spunk and gave him important assignments. Roy feared having strong men around him lest they become a threat to his hold over the National Board of Directors. Although it has not been too well publicized, there have really been two NAACPs for a number of years. One of them is Roy Wilkins Controlled, the other, the Legal Defense and Educational Fund, which was then at Columbus Circle, 
was formed when Walter White died and Roy became acting executive director. Thurgood Marshall was boss of legal activities and everyone who knew anything at all about the internal setup of the national office knew that there was not room enough there for these two giants. Some people thought Thurgood should have been made the top man after White's death, but Thurgood Marshall could never have been confined to a desk job, no matter how many speaking engagements were involved. Roy and Thurgood were so valuable that the board permitted the establishment of the Legal Defense Fund as an autonomous entity with its own board of directors and staff set up. The two organizations coexisted and cooperated whenever necessary. That's one thing you have to say about Roy. He could always cooperate when the chips were down, even if he didn't like you. However, for a number of years, Roy regarded Frank Williams as a mixed blessing. Roy was aware that there were people around the country, members of the board and some staff, who regarded Frank as a very good potential candidate for the top spot. The laws governing the organization are written so that it doesn't matter if the majority of the paid membership around the country wants a change of command. There can be no change of command unless the national board members so elect. The majority of the national board members are under Roy Wilkins' control. I know. I've been a member of that board and I've seen at first hand how Wilkins is able to fight off any onslaught against his leadership and resist change. Some years after my fundraising tour with Frank, a national committee was formed to push Frank as a candidate, as a member of the board. Wilkins must have seen this as a threat and used his influence to defeat him. Frank Williams lost a great loss to the NAACP. Frank, however, has gone on to do very well for himself. So, Jackie Robinson gives us a little bit of insight into the somewhat early days of the NAACP, his involvement in it. Um, I think he makes some very good points when he talks about black leadership and the old guard. And it's almost as if even as he's talking about that, you can see some of those same issues with black leadership and old guards and who wants to maintain control and power And why aren't there more people, more young people under 40 being pulled into black leadership positions, being trained for black leadership positions, being set up to be successful um, to lead the future? I think those are still concerns to this day. Um, Now, I am not sure if the NAACP had a change in their structure or not. It definitely is probably something to look into. Um, But. The NAACP, I would say probably maybe in the last five or six years has been a little bit more vocal, a little bit more outspoken, um, especially when it comes to police brutality, um, unsolved cases, um, especially in terms of the, the boy, I forget his name, that was found in Georgia who was rolled up in the gym mat. Cases like that, I have definitely kind of seen them come out and say, hey, you know, this needs to be investigated and actually petitioned. But Jackie does make some very good points. What are we doing for the future? Who are we investing in in the future that is in the under 40 crowd, in the under 40 group? And if you have young people around you, are you encouraging them to get involved in the political processes? 
Are you encouraging them to get involved in civic matters? Are you keeping them abreast of what is happening in the news, in your community, um, whether that's justice issues or economic issues or housing issues or social programs issues? There's a lot of things um, that are occurring in our neighborhoods, in our communities that I think we can do a better job of um, getting involved in and also making sure the young people who are connected to us also get that training. I know for me growing up, my grandmother was the one who kind of got me involved in social responsibility, civic duties, um, having a duty to my elders. Whenever I would come home from college, she would round me up and she would say, hey, (laughs) when are you going to come and speak at the Senior Citizens Center? And so oftentimes when I would come home from college, she would um, pick me up and we would go to the Senior Citizen Center and I would sit with the elders and listen to them. And sometimes I would present, you know, an encouraging message for a few minutes. Um, But then I noticed that even after I went back to school, I began to get more involved in what was happening in the community. So whether it was um, serving my local homeless shelter and going and making dinners and then serving that dinner to people or whether it was going to the nursing homes and um, singing for nursing home residents and encouraging them in the word and praying for them. I found myself taking the legacy and the seeds of what had been sown and planted and I found those seeds continuing to grow. So sometimes, you know, we might be hesitant about involving young people or we might be like, you know, they don't want to do that. They'd rather be doing something else. But you are still sowing those seeds of community. You're still sowing those seeds of volunteerism. You're still sowing those seeds of service. And so they have to start somewhere. And the best place to start is to actually see people in their own life carrying out those acts of service to their community. Um, Because my grandmothers, both of them have passed on, but I am still left with that memory and that legacy of seeing them go out into the community, seeing them petition. Like I know through the work that my grandmother did and watching her and being with her, that it was because of her that our elementary school in our community did not get destroyed and completely shut down after um, Hurricane Andrew. When our elementary school was destroyed, they weren't planning to rebuild it. And my grandmother was like, "Um, this is a elementary school in our community that needs to be rebuilt. And she petitioned, right? She went to the community, got signatures, went before the board and petitioned to make sure that they restored and rebuilt our elementary school with the funding that they were receiving for restoring the community. And at first they had only put up um, like portables in the space where the elementary school had been, but she made sure that they were going to follow through and that they were not going to let our school remain a whole campus of portables (laughs) calling it an elementary school. Um, and so our, that elementary school was rebuilt and now 
There's an elementary school that's that's there. There's a community center now that's across from the elementary school that didn't used to be there when I grew up. And so her legacy, part of her legacy was making sure that the community was being served, was being taken care of, was getting the funding, their their rightful allocation of money that was coming into the county, making sure that our community got their rightful allocation of the money. You need people that are willing and able to do that. And so I am very thankful that she let me in on the process. And the, again, the way she let me in on the process was by not excluding me, by taking me along with her when she was doing the petitions, by taking me along with her when she was meeting the board members and things of that nature. So sometimes we think that just because children are in our presence, that they're not necessarily catching the lessons, but they are. (laughs) Children are going to eventually do what they see more than what you say. I'm going to say that again. Children are eventually going to grow up and do more of what they have seen than what you have said to them. So keep that in mind as you are moving and acting and doing. Just make sure that if you have young people in your life, just understand they're going to model whatever you are doing and whatever you are are showing them on a regular basis. So this has been my Monday motivation. I hope that you have enjoyed tonight's talk. And if you would like to come on, I will wait a few seconds and see if you want to come on. If you would like to come on for uh, IG, you have to hit the camera, which has the plus sign on it. And it will let me know that you would like to come on and share. If not, I will close out here. For those of you who are listening by Anchor, I want to thank you for your time and attention tonight. This has been another episode, and I have been your host, Shante Charles. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so continue to go out and be light. And if we have no audience that wants to speak tonight, I am also going to close 